Welcome to the Black College Sports and Education Foundation weekly podcast, where we equip students, athletes, their families, and supporters with vital tools and information that will impact their decisions on educational opportunities and careers. Tune in every Thursday night at 7 Eastern Standard Time as we host prominent guests from a variety of backgrounds, such as education, sports, medicine, and the corporate world. Remember, the Black College Sports and Education Foundation is your one-stop resource center. Now here's your host, Gil McGregor. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. I'm your host, Gil McGregor, and today I am so pleased because I want to call her my colleague, and I don't want to stretch it by taking too much of a liberty to say that, but I am just pleased to have Dr. Charlie Flint with me because she is one of the members of the board of directors for BC Sports and Education Foundation. You know, we put ourselves in a position to try to do some good things in the community where consciousness, community, and all the things that we're trying to accomplish kind of merge together. Well, today we've got an educator, par excellence, to help us talk about what some of our goals are. And we're talking about an Aggie. You know, everybody talks about HBCUs, and North Carolina A&T is one of the premier HBCUs in this nation, and this is an Aggie. But it's also a professor who spent a lot of time in the New Jersey area at Rutgers University. In fact, the first sociologist PhD that's an African-American at Rutgers University. And I could talk about all kinds of things like that, but we're talking about publishing, many publications. We're talking about a foundation that established herself. We're talking about a work in the prison system. And again, Dr. Flint, thank you for being here with us. And I'm going to stop my talking and ask you to just let everybody know a little bit about yourself. And again, thanks for joining us this evening. Well, thank you so much, Gil, and I do consider you a colleague. Having talked to you, and we haven't met in person, but I do feel a kindred spirit with you because we've talked and we've talked about things that we have done, but mostly why we did those things in terms of helping what people are now calling undeserved populations. Cold word sometimes for us, who are what I call Afro-descendants. Some people call us black with a small B. <laughs> someone with a large B. We went through that thing with Negro, too, so I don't want to get Yes, yes. But I think... And colored. And yeah. colored. We don't want to forget colored. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't think they ever put a capital C on colored, though. <laughs> but... I think we are very much concerned about our community and, you know, at different levels. And now, you know, all my work has been for how do I help my community to enhance it, to give it skills, to empower themselves, because I don't think we can empower anyone. We can give them skills, but they have to use those skills to empower themselves and help to empower their community. And my mom has always said education was one of the skills, one of the tools that we need. They can take away a lot of things from us, she would say, but once you get your education, that they can't take away. And so I've always tried to use that, as you said, you know, in some of the intro remarks to me, whether I was in prison or whether I was working with elementary school or whether I was working with the Cubs, Scouts, or whatever, that was my goal. What can I do to help to advance what it is that we are trying to do? So that's where I am and where we are now. Ed and I grew up together down in Barnwell, South Carolina, but then he went away to service. He went to live in New York. I went on to college and 
grad school and taught for 47 years, I believe it was, maybe a little longer than that. I can't even remember anymore. And all this has been in higher ed, but I did do substitute teaching, and that was where I learned a lot about the public school systems. Can I interject right here? Yeah, you, sure. You, mm-hmm. you talked about the importance of education and that importance being passed down from our parents, grandparents, even our ancestors. Right. And within that importance of education that was passed down to us, the difficulties that were written into that importance by a certain system, particularly as it relates to public education, how that system is still being attacked even today by folks who want to privatize that system. Mm -hmm. What did those type of factoids do to cause you to be on the path that you are now on? Well, in terms of the private schools, I'm looking at them just as I did in 1971 when I wrote my master's thesis, and I looked at what was happening with the desegregation of schools. And unfortunately, the things that I predicted, people didn't think it was going to be true. I was this black radical. I was Angela Davis Jr., blah, 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 blah. But the (laughs) price was we paid a big price for the desegregation. They never integrated because when they desegregated the schools, they got rid of a lot of our African-American teachers and also principals and things. I know in my own school, our principal became a vice principal, and he was in charge of making sure the buses was parked correctly. They became basically detention officers of what somebody had said. Now, I didn't say this. I took it from somebody else. They became sort of like the overseers, like going all the way back to slavery. Now, we can't find very many people of African descent in education, teaching. I mean, people are having difficulty finding people. So I see these charter schools, believe it or not a lot, I see these charter schools as another step that they say it's going to help our students, but I've looked at it in Newark because I was near there where it was. And though they're calling charter schools, they're not reaching all of our kids. That's my thing. If they're going to reach all of the kids, I have no problems with it. But charter schools don't have to take everybody that comes to them like our public schools. And so I think we should take that money and put it in our public schools. That way everybody has access to good and thorough and efficient education. Whereas in the charter school. There are only going to be certain people who are going to be able to go into those schools. Of course, different charter schools will have different prerequisites of who comes and stuff like that, whereas in the public schools, they are bound to educate our students. And they say we're supposed to have a thorough and efficient education, but I know that in many of the schools, they don't do that. They do a lot of things. I just did a workshop on the school-to-prison pipeline down in North Carolina. And even though they aren't doing a lot of the stuff, like expelling kids because they use their hand like a gun, you know, little things like that, that got a lot of kids labeled as being in the juvenile justice system. So there are a number of things that our school system is trying to do, but we don't, meaning the American society, is not giving them the resources and things they need. And even though they don't have it all, some of them are still doing some good things. We've got some good students who've come out of these undeserved schools. So that's why I'm with CPAP. You know, I want to make education, and when I say education, is very broad. That is, some people don't know how to access a lot of the stuff that education is supposed to be given to our students. Well, Dr. Smith, please explain the acronym, what it stands for. Yeah, the College Preparatory Assistance Program, that's what we're talking about here. And we started out just in terms of how do we get students prepared to go to college. But then we broaden it, so it's not just in terms of 
the college preparatory, are we going to do that? But there are some students who may not want to go to a traditional four-year college. They might want to go to a two-year college. It's cheaper. A lot of the students going to higher ed now are going to the community college because they are cheaper, and many of them are doing very good things in terms of the kinds of skills our students need to be prepared for this 22nd century that's coming up because we, you know, halfway through the 21st century and we still back to 20th century in terms of what we are doing. So we want to extend that from K through 12, but mostly the program that CPAP is going to be for would be students who are in 7th and 8th grade. We have said 6th grade, but we, you know, we, we aren't sure we're going to do 6th through 8th or 7th and 8th. But clearly we're talking about before they get into high school. Our high schools just don't have the resources to do what needs to be done to prepare our students for the world that they are going into. Some of them do. Some of the kids are okay, but a lot of the underserved schools just don't have all the resources that they need. And they bring a lot of things to schools that schools are not prepared to do, but they are asked to do that. You know, kids come to school hungry. Why do schools have to deal with that? We've had principals. I read a story of African-American men. He set up space that weren't being used in his school for a place for kids to come in and take a shower. We have a large number of students coming yes. to high school yes. don't have homes. Yes. They're homeless. So he's one of those, I would call, forward-looking administrators who know somebody has to do something. That's not our charter, and as we aren't charged to do that, but, you know, a kid cannot learn if a kid is hungry. So he set up, you know, breakfast kind of things for the kids. Now, the government has done that, too. But, you know, we've seen what's been happening lately. You don't pay the little bit you have to pay, and some parents can't. They don't have it. Then you can't get the breakfast, and that doesn't make sense. So there are lots of other things that they have to deal with. Kids are traumatized just by living in certain neighborhoods and things, the things that go on. And schools are expected to deal with that. So we need more social workers in the schools. We need more guidance counselors. We need a lot more stuff. So we said with CPAP we would serve as an assistant to them in the sense that we aren't taking over anybody's job, we aren't reinventing the wheel, but we would be able to help those students. Mostly schools who have sixth and seventh graders don't even have a guidance counselor. If they do, that guidance counselor can't take care of all of those sixth and seventh graders. It's interesting, Dr. Flynn, anecdotally, when you were talking about the changes that occurred in the public school system, I'm old enough, and thank God I am. In 1965, the state of North Carolina had something called the Freedom of Choice Act, Mm -hmm. and I participated in that, and I could go to any school that I chose, and I chose Mm -hmm. to integrate the high school in my hometown. Mm -hmm. And I do Mm -hmm. remember going back a couple years later just to visit my high school, from which Mm -hmm. I graduated, Mm -hmm. and I saw some of the teachers who had been at what was the previously all-black high school. One lady who used to be the head of the chemistry department at all-black high school now was just a teacher at the mm-hmm. white school. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman who was uh, kind of in charge of discipline, if you will, because we had a lot of female teachers at the all-black school who mm-hmm. wasn't going to be tussling with some old boys who wasn't right. acting right, but they sent him to Mr. Williams. Mr. Williams had a remedy for all of that. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Williams wasn't going to discipline any of the white students at the exactly. school when they merged. And so the authority, the leadership of black educators at the secondary school level was eroded right. by integration. Exactly. And there was a situation where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where a white principal went to the detention area and saw that there were maybe 30 kids in detention, but three of them or four of them were black. Mm-hmm. 
and she wanted the teachers to explain how that could possibly happen because right. it seemed that the discipline was a little bit out of whack. And now teachers don't live in the same neighborhood where the students live. And so exactly. teachers who used to help raise kids now are only instructing kids. Right. And they're instructing them on the national test, right. not necessarily where to put the fork and the knife on the table and how to mm-hmm. grow up. Mm-hmm. So a program like CPAP, obviously, that's going to fill so many cultural gaps exactly. is needed. Mm-hmm. Can you expand upon that just a little bit of what, CPAP would be bringing to the student population that we want to address? Okay. Well, I think what I see and the team I'm working with, we believe that the curriculums that we have should be student-centered. Now, what do we mean by student-centered? We need to get to know our students. Like you say, and I'm not blaming the teachers, I'm not blaming anybody because it's systemic, system thing, that they have to teach to the test because if they don't bring their school up to whoever set these policies up, you know, we got a secretary of education, and I'm not being political. I'm just stating a fact. We got a secretary of education that's supposed to be over all our schools. She's never been in a classroom. You know, how <laughs> can you have somebody like that? But I want to ask you something about her. Do you know, I used to be a professional basketball broadcaster, and her family owns the Orlando Magic right. NBA team. Mm-hmm. And their business prior to owning the team, do you know what it was? What? Are you ready for this? Tell me. <laughs> it's Amway. <laughs> now, we all, all know serious. about Amway, don't we? <laughs> yes. The divorce family owns the Amway business. So oh I just thought God. I'd throw that out there and let me get back out of your way. <laughs> yeah, we got people who are making decisions about our children's lives that have no grounding in terms of education. I mean, I'm going way back to the school board. Whereas do you have a profession, because education is, and you have none of those. The board that runs the American Medical Association, or what was the national one, because, you know, even then we were segregated, would have doctors on the board. Do you know there are towns where they elect board members and not one of them knows, well, I'm assuming they don't know anything about education, because they have not been (laughs) in there. They have not been in the pool. They've politicized it. It's supposed to be nonpartisan election town I left with, it was not nonpartisan. You had signs all over the place, vote for this. You know, the red sign and the blue sign. I said, this (laughs) this is what I'm saying about they're not taking into effect the cultural things of our students, as you mentioned earlier, because when we were growing up in the segregated schools, we didn't have a lot of things that they had in the white schools, but we had teachers who knew us because they lived in our community. They knew your parents, and so you were frightened to do stuff because you know well, when I get home, Mama gonna already know. And we didn't have yes. the phones either. Don't ask me how they got it, but it was there. <laughs> Those teachers would tell us what was expected of us. Yeah, we're segregated, but that's not going to stop us from doing what we need to do. That's why we need to even be more diligent. So what we want students to understand, though there are students who go 12 years of secondary education and not have one black teacher, now, I'm not talking about just our black students, but all oh, study just came out that says all students do better when they have faculty of color, particularly African-American. Okay. But they aren't being in the schools because they are saying, well, I'm not going to education. I, I don't want to be there. You know, I'm sick of being the one sitting in the table by myself. There's a book I'm reading why all the kids sitting together in the cafeteria, meaning the black kids, because, you know, it's so few of them in some of these schools that they go to. So what we want to do is, first of all, get our students to understand who they are, where they came from. Yes, no matter what the teacher tells you, 
like the teacher told Malcolm X, oh, you no, no, you can't be no lawyer. No matter what they tell you, and not all teachers do this, but enough of them do it, plan in the student's mind that there are only certain things that they can do. So we are saying that let's get back and let students know who they really are. Where did they come from? What is it that they can do? you got to work hard for it, but, you know, you need to do it. So that's the one thing, getting students back into who they are. So the first part of the curriculum will be getting students to understand who we are, who they are. And we, you know, ask them things. What do you like to do? Well, what do you mean, what do I like to do? What do you like to do? You know, well, I like Legos. Well, you know, we can do a whole curriculum around that. There are people now using Legos, and it's bigger than Disney World, where students go to, it's sort of like the robotics kind of thing. And I just saw an ad yesterday, they asking people, if you have old Legos, please send them to a certain place. They'll clean them up and they'll send them out to these places where students want to do that. So you have students understand what they're interested in and how can they turn that into something that will help them do what it is they want to do. Most of them don't know what they want to do because they aren't sure of what it is that they can do. Okay. CPAP wants to encourage students, once they've looked at their competency and we can help them do that, we want them to be able to advance to wherever they're going, whether it's a four-year college or whether it's playing a particular sport, whatever they decided that they're going to do, but it will be an informed decision, not just something somebody's telling them to do or what. I have athletes who their coaches tell them, oh, you don't want to be no engineer, and that's going to take up too much time, or you don't want to be a chemist. I noticed for a fact because they would come to me and say this, well, I can't take your senior seminar because we've got to practice for so-and-so and so. We know you're hard, but the students always come out and say, but, man, you sure learn a lot in that class. And so we have to make sure that they know their rights. You know, yeah, you have to practice for football. But we've got to do it, and, you know, hopefully we'll do a piece that you are working with in terms of what happened to these students when they get to college. What do we do there? How do we continue this? We don't just cut them off when they graduate, but you will take up from there as you did at Wake Forest with your academic counselor kind of thing. We need that, too, for students who didn't come through CPAP, and we also have students that hopefully in the next 20 years will have come through CPAP, and when they get ready to leave secondary education, they are very clear about what it is they want to do, what it is they can do, and what it is that they need to do. Tell me, what schools would best benefit from a program like CPAP, and how do we introduce CPAP? Who do we tell about ourselves so that students can take advantage of a program like this? Well, I think we could work with what I call all the stakeholders in education. And, of course, we want to work with the schools, We want to work with community-based organizations, and that would include churches, businesses, all those people. We want to work with them because I believe it's right. People have ever since Hillary did her book, Takes a Village, well, we know that's been around ever since Africa has been around. It takes a village to raise a child. So we are saying that you can't put all of this just on the teachers, that everybody in that community should be able to help in some way. In many of the undeserved communities, we have to work together because we don't have the resources needed to do what we have to do. So if you are a business in that community, you need to give something back. You shouldn't be given any tax breaks unless those taxes are going to come back to the school. Because I really do believe the schools are the basic for all those communities. Those communities where kids are doing well, the school is great. Okay, So I want all schools to be like that. 
You know, I want all schools to be like that, and we all can participate in that too, and that's the other part of CPAP. We want the community to understand what it is that they should be doing and can do because many of them don't, particularly if we go into communities that have a large number of immigrants. They may come from countries where whoever was in charge was the one who made all the decision and they went away because I know that's what happened to me up in New Jersey. They would say, well, that's a teacher. I can't tell her what to do. We're not telling you to tell the teacher. We want you to look at the system. Come to the meetings, and if we need to change the meetings from day to night, we need to do that. And maybe a Saturday we can get together. Or maybe the churches could let us have their church after church. Uh, things like that, little things. We don't need a whole bunch of money in the most undeserved communities because they don't have it. But if we work together with everybody in that. So how do they get to us? We have a web page which they can access to see how to get into the program. We would be doing what I would call workshops with parents to let them understand what's going on because, again, a lot of the parents may not know. I mean, if I look back at where I came from, all my mama wanted us to do was to get education. You know, she may not have known what were some of the other things that we were entitled to because she didn't know and I didn't know. You know, they had loans for us to go to college, but many of us couldn't do that. I was one of those. When I told them how much my mom was making, they said I forged the application. No, that's all my mom was making. Oh, really? Yeah. My mama was a domestic, and they weren't even covered by Social Security then. It was much later that domestics and farm workers were covered by Social Security. They weren't in the beginning. So there are still certain kinds of things that we don't know, and I don't know, but I would always be educating myself, too. How do I have my students our students get those things that they're entitled to. There are schools who don't use Title I at all. This money goes back to federal government. You know, if you have X number of students who are below the poverty level, there are a number of things you're entitled to. If you don't know about them, you can't. Like the SNAP program, the breakfast. Okay. Of course, that's the first thing they want to cut out. Things yes. like that. You're entitled to that. If you think something is not going right with your child, you have a right to say, well, I want my kid to be tested. Because the teacher okay. early on will label them. If he's in the classroom and he's acting up, well, he probably has a reason. Again, there's tons of research on what happens to young boys, particularly African and Latino boys. They start kindergarten, they're bright as heck. By the time they get to third grade, they say they can't do this. They have not been taught. You have mostly teachers, in this case mostly white teachers teaching boys yes. of color. And they don't understand yes. each other, you know. And they get labeled early on as a troublemaker. The troublemaker will be the first one that they send out to the detention center. They get labeled then as a juvenile delinquent. And, of course, most kids who get labeled as a juvenile delinquent, they're going to become prison. A criminal. A criminal. Thank and that's you. that system when you talk about. That's the education to prison. Pipeline. Superhighway. Mm-hmm. And, and that's better. You, and it then is when you start hearing about prisons being for profit, mm-hmm. it certainly makes you think twice about what's the whole reason for mm-hmm. this prison system. Right. Well, as the history will tell us, the boys told them that the prisons that were being built right after the Civil War was going to be the new... Plantation system? Plantation system, thank you. The new plantation system. And when you look at the history, it was. Angola was the biggest plantation in Louisiana, and it is now the biggest prison in Louisiana yes, it in is. the country. You know, So they were built for somebody making some money. It's just that now it's very clear we have more private prisons, or the states will pay private prisons, then it's our tax money. 
that we're paying for these detention centers and these state prisons and the jails that we have at the county level and things like that. It's making money. And we know it's not cutting the crime rate down because it's been going down. Why are we building more prisons if the crime exactly. rate is going down? So for me, it's all these systems working together, and we have to, for lack of a better word, attack them as a warn, all of them. How, you know, people begin to look at the prison and the schools, but what about other institutions within our society that helps to maintain and keep our children where they are? You know, which means some of them drop out of high school at 11th grade, and somebody said, but why 11th grade? They almost, I said, because they turned 16. And yes. at 16, you don't have to go to school anymore. And so what do we do? Kids get bad. We expel them. Oh, they are so happy because now they don't have to go to that school. But it's <laughs> not doing anything for them. I said, you should not expel them. So a few of the schools have these school-based things where they're supposed to be teaching them. But I went to mine, and the teacher's sitting there reading and checking her email, and the kids are asleep. And they told me that, but I didn't believe them. Well, you know, Dr. Flint, when you were talking about a part of an element that touches me most personally is the element of the student-athlete and mm-hmm. the African-American male who participates in athletics sometimes as a way of just being able to participate because they're not encouraged to be math whizzes mm-hmm. or science whizzes or mm-hmm. sociologists or engineers mm-hmm. or any of those things, and so they mm-hmm. can see success through athletics. And then there's exportation in the athletics, and nobody's trying to help them become well-rounded because there's nothing wrong with being an athlete and being smart at the same time. But some people don't necessarily see that as their mission as an educator to see that young African-American people, particularly males, are educated. And that's why when I hear a program like CPAP, it shows me the importance of what it can mean to a community of young males. Mm-hmm. I was told that about third grade and nine months, young males, not just black males, but young males want to pick up whatever it is they're studying. They want to turn it over, look mm-hmm. at it, maybe even take it mm-hmm. apart. Mm-hmm. And some teachers do evaluate that as being rowdy and, right. and unruly and out of control. Instead mm-hmm. of telling you to learn the blueprint or let you take it apart, they send you to some other classroom to get you out of the way because you're hindering everybody else's education. Exactly. And those kind of things have to stop. I have a son that is a graduate of Wake Forest, and he mm-hmm. played a little basketball, and he was a pretty good kid, pretty smart. Mm-hmm. And we sent him off to a prep school in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and he talked about going into a classroom, and one of the students said, you know this is advanced English, don't you? And mm-hmm. he had to tell his classmate, I know where I am. Mm-hmm. And I guess CPAP, And all of the things that we're trying to do is help young African-American students who are Mm -hmm. trying to be successful in the 21st and 22nd century, that they know where they are at any given time and place in education and in society. So I thank you for being such a scholar, for being a professor emeritus. I just know but all the things that you do pedagogically and striving to make this a better society. And I just want you to get reach out to people, tell them how to contact you or how to contact us so that they can be a part of what we're doing through CPAP to make this a better place for everybody. You could contact me at www.bcsportsfoundation.com. And there are others on that webpage that you can contact as well. You could also contact me at drcflint at aol.com. And the other parts of our staff is on there as well. You have people like Gil 
who could be tremendous in terms of athletics. You have Ken Free, who is also very well known in athletics. And then we have Andrea Jeffcourt, who does the public relation. And go to the webpage, you can see their email addresses. But if it's particular about CPAP, you can contact me at my address. And then also Mr. Eddie Hayes, who is our executive director, who have been doing the Black College Sports Foundations, but he's now getting more into integrating and synthesizing education and athletics because we've been doing that for centuries. A lot of people who are very outstanding leaders and stuff had the athletic thing on it. Ken, he did a lot. Yeah, with the commissioner of the MEAC. Right. And he also was on the committee for the NCAA. And I just want to let everybody know also that we welcome your comments. We welcome your ideas. We welcome your suggestions as to how you can help us help you to reach more young people to help make our communities better, bigger, and stronger. And also to let you know that any contributions, anything that you decide to do to help us become successful, is tax deductible. So we want you to know that we are here for the young people Mm. and their parents. Right. and our communities. Yeah, and one thing I want to say is that this CPAP program, the program itself is free. The students that we help who get in contact with us, we start whenever they start. We're hoping they'll start very early, and we will not let them slip away because we have people who are going to be mentors, and they're going to be monitoring our kids to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they don't have to pay a cent. But as you know, those of you listening... Everything costs some money, and so we do need money to help pay for a number of the things that we might have, like if we bring somebody in to do a workshop for some of the schools who may need something, we would need some monies to do that. And the day-to-day operation of the program, we need money for that as well. So your money would go not just to make somebody else richer or something like that, but to help us help the students who we are trying to get them prepared for life when they leave secondary education. Dr. Flint, there's a statement that was made, and I always like to include it in our podcast. One of the individuals who was most impressive and most impactful in my life, and people like to drop names, and I don't like to drop names, except in this case, this is the name I don't mind dropping and tell everybody this was a friend of mine. Dr. Maya Angelou was a friend of mine, and I am so proud of that. And she says, and I like to repeat it for every show, mm-hmm. when you get, give. When you learn, teach. I think that's the mantra of what we're trying to do at our website, on our webpage, through our programming, and certainly through CPAP. And certainly you've been so insightful in helping us and being a part of what we're trying to do and developing CPAP. And nobody better than to let people know what it is about, how it's supposed to work, and where we want it to go is you, Dr. Charlie Flynn. And we thank you for your time today. We thank you for your time prior to today to becoming an educated individual that you are, but keeping your eyes and your hands and your heart on the community in which we all live. And let's hope that CPAP can be expanded to touch the secondary schools around this country to prepare all young people, our young people, especially young people whose communities and families have been underserved, to be able to reach out and not only achieve their dreams, but help us as a society to have bigger and better dreams, too. Very good. Very well said. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Charlie Flint, for being our guest today. And all of you listening, join us again next week for more exciting guests on our podcast. We thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast. For more information about us, please visit our website at www.bcsportsfoundation.com. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HBCU for Life. That's HBCU, the number four, life. To be a potential guest on our podcast, contact Ed J. Hayes at ed.j.hayes at gmail.com. Tune in next week for another amazing show.